Welcome to Creep Shows, where we discuss films that are just generally discomforting. I'm Ian. And I'm Madeline. And today we're talking about M, the Fritz Lang classic from 1931. This is a German movie. It was produced in Germany, and it is all in German. And if you don't have anything, Ian, I'm going to jump straight into the summary. Yeah, go for it. All right. Oh, and by the way, we did watch this on YouTube. Um, We found a full version of it with no ads. If you just go onto YouTube and type in M1931 full movie, it will be the first one that pops up. I highly, highly recommend you go watch this movie before listening to this episode and before I spoil everything for you. Yep, because it's definitely spoiler heavy. All right, so I'm going to get into this. All right. So the movie starts out with a group of children playing a schoolyard game. A young girl is chanting the words, and this is just the English subtitle translation. Just you wait, it won't be long. The man in black will soon be here. With his cleaver's blade so true, he'll make mincemeat out of you. Not morbid at all. Yeah, it's a morbid duck-duck-goose. Exactly. So whoever she is pointing at when the chant ends is out of the game. She starts the song again, but her mother comes out and yells at her to stop singing the awful song. In the next scene, we see the girl's mother setting the table for a meal once her daughter gets home from school or is supposed to get home from school. When we see the little girl walking home on her own, she is bouncing a ball and she comes across a sign that reads 10,000 mark reward. Who is the murderer? Little Kurt Klowitzki and his sister Clara have been missing since June 11th. Evidence leads us to believe the children were victims of a crime similar to that committed last fall against the Doring siblings. At this point, we see the shadow of a man in a hat appear against the poster, and he tells the girl what a pretty ball she has and asks for her name. She tells him her name is Elsie Beckman. The man takes Elsie to buy a balloon from a blind man, and and we know he's blind because he has a sign around his neck that says blind. And he walks away whistling the tune of In the Hall of the Mountain King, which, Ian, can you give us an example of this tune? Uh, not off the top of my head. I totally forgot it. Uh, I'm trying to remember it as well. Yes, And I got a, a bit on that later, so keep going. All right. So the man walks away with Elsie, and the next we see of her is just her ball rolling out from some bushes, and her balloon is caught in telephone wires. Elsie is presumably dead, and people are panicked because this is the eighth child to go missing. The killer sends a note to the press stating, Because the police did not publish my first letter, I am now writing directly to the press. Proceed with your investigations. All will soon be confirmed, but I am not done yet. The letter is published in the newspaper and a citywide manhunt begins. The police are doing their own investigation, but there is also an underground crime world that decides to take matters into their own hands and investigate as well. The next we see the killer is a young girl is looking into a shop window on her own and we see a man whose face we've seen a few times already looking at her from across the street through a glass reflection and he starts whistling the same tune again. And so at this point we know, okay, this is our killer. And just as he is approaching her and about to grab her, the young girl runs into her mother and is safe. Her mother warns her against walking alone and tells her daughter she knows why, meaning the killer. 
So the killer makes the mistake then of walking past the same blind man who sold the balloon to Elsie, whistling that song again. The blind man recognizes this immediately, and he calls over a younger gentleman and tells him to follow the whistling. The man following him sees the killer come across another little girl that he's trying to capture. And so this follower with a piece of chalk writes a giant letter M on his hand and quote-unquote accidentally bumps into the killer marking him on the back of his coat with an M signaling to others that he is the murderer. Very clever. The young girl the man is preying on sees the M and makes the killer aware of it. The killer realizes he has been caught and abandons the girl to run away, trying to avoid capture. The killer hides out in the attic of an office building and is ultimately caught, but not by the police. The killer is brought before his peers and is given a defender before the people. The killer pleads with the people that he is sick and can't control himself from killing, trying to bargain for some sympathy. He also tries to point out that the panel of men he has been brought before have also committed crimes of their own, and he makes the statement, What right have you to speak, criminals? Perhaps you are even proud of yourselves, proud of being able to crack into safes or climb buildings or cheat at cards? All of which, it seems to me, you could just as easily give up if you had learned something useful, or if you had jobs, or if you were not such lazy pigs. I cannot help myself. I have no control over this evil thing that is inside me. The fire, the voices, the torment. Well, this bargaining does not work, and the people are calling for his head. He murdered their children, so why should he live? The defender is the only person who advocates that the killer deserves a fair trial before an actual judge, and that while the people are rightfully angry, they are not the law, and this killer is still a human being. The defender also points out that this self-appointed judge is wanted on three counts of manslaughter himself. He makes the point that it is not the role of the people to play executioner. However, the people are so angry about the killer's heinous acts that they do not rationalize what the defender is saying. As the mob of people advance against the killer, they all of a sudden stop and slowly raise their hands. We see a hand reach into the shot, grabbing the killer's shoulder, and a voice says, in the name of the law. In this last scene, we cut to a courtroom and we see a panel of judges walk in. The middle judge starts with saying, in the name of the people, and it cuts over to a group of women in mourning. And one of them says, this will not bring our children back. One has to keep closer watch over the children, all of them. And it slowly fades into black, and that is the end of the movie. All right. This one was pretty intense. Uh, yes, it was, especially that end scene. Um, it was a lot of buildup to that ending scene. Yeah, so if you have watched the film and you know what we're talking about, this movie, at least for me, it really held up like you don't think of a 90 year old movie an 89 year old movie at this point you don't think that that would be comparable to anything that we see in modern uh, filmmaking you know it's all the techniques back then were so much different and the storytelling was so much different but this this film just really really held up and honestly you've said this before about other movies I think this has been probably my favorite new film that I've watched so far for this podcast really it was just so well made yeah it really was as Ian said it really held up um it's 
amazing cinematography. I know Ian is going to go into that. Absolutely amazing. Um, the acting was great. Very, very good storytelling. Yeah, no, I really recommend everyone go watch this movie. Even if I already just ruined it for you, you should <laughs> still go watch it. Yeah, definitely still watch it. Um, some of the interesting things that I've found on the film. So this movie, like I said, 1931, uh, directed by Fritz Lang, a famous German filmmaker. And it was actually his first sound film. So up to this point, he had only done silent films. Uh, the one that he's probably most widely recognized for is the classic Metropolis, which I know Madeline and I watched together. We watched that, and I read earlier ago. that was actually a flop at the time it released. Yeah, well, the whole reason why was because the massive set pieces, like they spent so much time designing the set, and it was huge and grandiose, and like they just ended up going way over budget on like actually filming it, oh, and then okay. everybody it was a little bit inaccessible for the lay person to really be able to enjoy because it was definitely like an art house sort of film. Um, yeah. I but didn't yeah. Like so it like, much it's not surprising it. that it was a flop because it was definitely, it was out there. <laughs> so weirdly enough with this being one of Lang's, well, his first sound film, his first talkie. Yeah. It, it doesn't have a film score. Right. Like most films that we know of all have film scores. This one didn't. The only pieces of music are the diegetic ones. There's the song whistled by the killer. And there's another instance. The only other instance of music in the film is in the same courtyard where we see the children playing in the very beginning. There's a, an organ grinder, uh, a guy with just like a, a box where he cranks a wheel and it plays like a, a pre-made song using mechanics inside of it. So those are the only two instances that we get music in the entire film, which I thought was really interesting. It's a, a huge departure from the silent film style because, you know, since there's no dialogue other than just like the the dialogue cards that you see intercut in between all the scenery, the entire tonality of silent films is all determined by the score. You know, you've got huge crescendos for exciting moments and you've got just little pitter-patters of chill ass music when stuff's just you know i guess meant to be pleasant so it's a really yeah. weird way to to see that obviously like as a director and as a creator fritz lang was so versatile that he could make a film like this where he didn't use sound as um the main driving force which is not to say that it wasn't utilized effectively so this is one of the first films that one of the first, not the first, but one of the first films to use uh, a technique called a leitmotif, leitmotif? I think it's leitmotif. Yeah, so it's basically just a, a recurring piece of music associated with a character, place, or situation. Um, and so that's that's the song that we hear the killer whistling. Like every time you know something bad's about to happen, you hear that song. And so that was one of the really effective ways that... Fritz Lang was able to incorporate sound into the film as a tension-building device. Now, I said a little bit earlier that I kind of had a little bit on that whistling. So, funny enough, Peter Lorre, the actor playing Hans Becker, Oh, yeah, killer, I read this. Yeah, so, kind of like you and me, he couldn't whistle for shit. So, don't the, ask me to whistle. It's uh, really embarrassing. Don't. Like, it's bad. 
Um, but he couldn't whistle almost at all. And so the whistling that we actually hear in the film is Fritz Lang himself, who just dubbed it in and added that stuff in later. Yeah, I came across that actually, but I didn't put it in my notes thinking you would yeah. say it. And real quick, I just want to say, yeah, it really was noticeable to me in this film that in moments where there weren't dialogue, there wasn't music. Like there were so many just completely dead, silent action yeah, scenes. Exactly. Which was honestly really impactful in its own way. Um, but yeah, it was a really interesting choice. Yeah, actually, I have. there's an example of that. Um, the sequence where we see the police moving in to raid this gambling den where the, uh, like this underground criminal people where they all hang out. And for like a good 30 seconds to a minute before, we see a shot of the street outside with the police gathering and moving into position and stuff like that. And it's dead silence, complete and utter silence until they're about ready to make their move. And one of them blows their police whistle. And then that's when we just get like this cacophony of, you know, feet stamping on the ground, people yelling and shouting. You've got everyone from the gambling get den trying to escape into the street and then getting corralled back downstairs. It's this juxtaposition of, you know, utter silence, like the, the calm before the storm, as it said, and then just pure chaos. And I think that was a really awesome way that they used sound effectively to just build up that tension because you see what's happening. You know what's going to happen. And it's kind of confusing as to why you can't hear it. And then when everything kicks off, it's just like, oh, okay, yep, makes sense. Yeah, there were a couple points, like, before I realized that's what the movie was doing, where it was just being completely silent, I did kind of wonder, like, um, is this glitching yeah is the youtube video broken is this what we get for watching it on youtube yeah (laughs) yeah so kind of in the opposite of that with the absence of sound there's a sequence where we see the police uh it's like the police inspector and basically like a they're in like a conference room or something like that talking about their plan to go after the killer and we see that intercut with basically the same setup but from the criminal side so there's the the head criminal whose name I don't remember. Um, I don't know if he had a name. Honestly, I, I'm sure he did. Uh, there's the, the head criminal talking to all of his criminal underlings, and this sequence has like an intercut. So we'll see like the police inspector talking to his people, and then before they can respond, it cuts over to the criminal and his people's response to whatever question he just asked. That sort of thing. And so by intercutting that dialogue, it kind of makes it feel as though, you know, even though these two groups are on opposite sides of the law, they're largely acting the same in how they're seeking justice. So it's an interesting way to kind of blur those lines between, uh, you know, lawful protectors and unlawful protectors, which I think is one of the main themes of the film. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I can get into this, but yeah, something I came across a little bit in my research was how this um, society that we're seeing, this city, is very morally void. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. So in some of my research, I found an article from filminquiry.com. Uh, And in it, there's a bit that says film historians David Bordwell and Kristen Thompson in their book, Film History, had this to say about Lang's M. Quote, 
He experimented with sound bridges, carrying over the sound, particularly voices, from one scene into the next, a technique that would not be commonly used until modern Hollywood cinema, unquote. So even these like, and these are two very well-renowned uh, film historians, Bordwell and Thompson, and they see that there's been such a big impact from this time period. Like this part of... How do I phrase this correctly? So in, in Weimar, Germany, the period in between World War I and World War II, um, because they were devastated a lot from World War I and the economy was just thrashed, there was a huge boom of artistic creativity. And so specifically for the filmmaking industry, uh, the films made during that period have had such a huge impact on cinematography as a whole moving forward, like for the entire world, not just for German cinema. And so that's a testament to how fantastic this film really is because you can absolutely see it. Um, there, sorry, <laughs> I just scratched my foot. Um, so it's interesting to see the, the, the sort of impact that they've had on future films. Um, there was, I'll get more into the actual cinematography of it later, but I have a couple interesting bits on a little bit that goes into the production. Do you have anything you want to get into before I get in all my other stuff? Um, I have a little bit of production stuff. So can I read what I have just in case you also have this? Cause I yeah, I don't have a ton, a ton of notes on this movie. Permission granted. Carry right. on. So, Fritz Lang in 1930 placed an advertisement in a newspaper stating his next film would be Murderer Among Us and that it was about a child murderer. He immediately started to begin um, receiving threatening letters. And he was denied a studio space at Staken Studios. And when he confronted the head of the studio, Lang was told he was denied access because the head of the studio was a member of the Nazi party and the party suspected the film was meant to depict Nazis. The assumption was based entirely on the movie's original title and the Nazi party was chill about it once Lang told them the plot. They realized, oh, it actually isn't just about us. Um, this movie was shot in six weeks. Um, it originally had the other titles of A City Searches for a Murderer and Your Murderer Looks at You. Um, he ultimately decided on the title M because of the scene where the M is put on the back of the killer's coat. And then something that I thought was interesting is Lang actually spent eight days in a German mental institution doing research for this movie, and he met several child murderers, including Peter Curtin, who is known as the Vampire of Dusseldorf. And several real criminals were actually cast as extras in the movie, and by the end of filming, 25 cast members had been arrested during <laughs> filming. Um, he did say later in a 1963 interview that Curtin was not the sole inspiration for the murderer because at this time there were many other serial killers terrorizing Germany at the time. And I'm going to talk about these people just very briefly later on, such as Fritz Harman, who was also known as the Butcher of Hanover, Carl Groveman, who was also known as the Berlin Butcher, and Carl Dinka. 
Why do they always have goofy names like that? I don't know. What do you mean? Like the AKA like, name? Or? Yeah, like the butcher of wherever. Like it's always butcher I'm, for obvious Actually, reasons. Actually, butcher of Hanover, Berlin butcher. Yeah. Peter Curtin, though, he's a vampire. He's a vampire. Yeah, that's Dusseldorf. an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um, that was pretty much all I had, though, for like production stuff. Okay. I don't know if you had any of that information. No, that's as funny because well. that's actually exactly what I had that I oh. found interesting. Oh, so, I'm so sorry. No, that's fine. That's why I let you go first. I don't <laughs> want to step on your toes. I got enough more to keep going. All right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. So, kind of like bringing it back around to the impact of uh, filmmaking during the Weimar Republic in Germany. Um, the so half the film is directing which we see from fritz lang who interestingly enough he was married to uh a screenwriter who helped him write this film so his wife helped him write the film interesting um yeah it's a whole story with them i, I guess. did read that she later joined the nazi party yeah yeah, yeah. i have a I mean, little bit on that's a that. that's a fucked up time in german history like i'm sure there was no easy answer for a lot of these people that yeah. were just like definitely one way or the other so i don't know enough about it but it sucks but so other than the directing side writing it like there's the actual action of filming scenes which you need a cinematographer to do right like you can't just be a director and say okay i'm getting behind the camera and i know what i'm doing because chances are if you're not experienced already in that area it's going to turn out looking like shit so Fritz Lang partnered up with one of the most prolific German cinematographers of the era, a man by the name of Fritz Arno Wagner. So he also did the camera work for Nosferatu, the film that inspired many, many vampire movies ever since then. Everybody, Are we going to watch that one? I mean, maybe for this? I don't know. I'd be down to. It's... The fact that Fritz Arno Wagner was the cinematographer on it automatically makes me want to watch it because the shots that he pulled off in this film were super impressive and I found them to be just really, really cool. Um, so he was a, a prolific cinematographer in the German Expressionist era and he had a lot of an influence on what would come to be the film noir style of filmmaking. And... There was a film critic in Germany and then later France, a woman by the name of Lottie Eisner, and she coined a term to describe this style of filmmaking. She called it Stimmung, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but, you know, I suck at German anyway. Um, But anyway, so Stimmung is a tone that's used to describe his work as brooding and introspective in tone, illuminated by pools or shafts of light the total effect reflecting the character's states of mind. So that that super high contrast sort of, you know, really dark blacks and really bright whites uh, as like an alternative style, alternative, an artistic choice. That's what she labeled as Stimmung. And so alternative to that, uh, Wagner was also known for his naturalistic style of cinematography. So think documentaries you know things that are just not meant to be super stylistic but portray the world in you know no uncertain terms no sort of influence there. just like hey here's a snapshot boom um so both of those film styles the naturalistic style and the stimung style were both used in the film 
in different areas. Uh, and it just like everything else with the themes of the story, it shows this stark contrast between this. What's the best way to put it? It's like another way to show the world being created in the story against the way that the characters perceive it is the way that I always looked at it because you can see just like this untainted view of the actual scenery of the actual environments. And then whenever there's a character, you know, getting some sort of influence over the audience, if they're expressing something, that's when you see this Stimung style kicking in. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So in the period sort of leading up to when this film was made in 1930, um, there had been kind of this shift away from camera movement. Um, they wanted to focus more on calculated angles and lighting choices to get their tone exact. So they just wouldn't move the camera at all. No pan, no tilt, no dolly, no nothing. It just sits there. Um, ooh, excuse me. And so while Wagner was technically proficient in doing that, he clearly liked moving the camera through a scene as, as what I took as sort of a way to capture more of the essence of the scene. So for me, there were two really notable instances of awesome camera movement. Um, I know one that you're going to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I know you know the one. So there was a scene, there's a transition. It's two shots of the facade of two different buildings. And basically, it's a tilt from the first floor up to the second floor. And in between where these two windows are, there's a like this seamless sort of faded transition to where it looks like from the first floor of the building to the second floor of the building, it looks like the same building, but you can definitely tell it's not. Um, because it was such a seamless sort of transition, it's just a tilt up and then they just fade the cut in. So that when they tilt up to the second floor in the other location, like it looks like a continual shot. And I found that to be really impressive. That's that was a stylistic choice that I'm sure was not super common back in the day. Um, I haven't watched enough films from this time period to know for sure. But let's watch more. Yeah, I know. I'm down. No, these are really good. Um, So I found that shot to be really cool. And then the one that you know that I'm going to talk about. So there's a shot where the camera starts in the street and it's looking into a window where there's some people talking and the camera dollies in closer and closer and passes through the window and enters like where this group of actors are. It's something that in practicality like required they had to pull the glass aside right as the camera reached that glass pane. But nowadays that's something that they'll, they'll just do it with CGI. So the fact that 90, almost 90 years ago, someone had this idea of starting outside, going through a window and getting inside, they accomplished that with a practical application. Because if I can remember correctly, I think you can actually see a little bit of a line where the glass pane slides off so the camera can push through where the window actually was. And I just thought that was so damn cool. Yeah, I think you pointed that out when watching. And I've heard you talk about that scene like three more times mm-hmm. since then. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was very, very interesting how yeah. they did that. It was cool. Because that, I mean, the thing that comes to mind for a modern day comparison, I don't remember the film, but there was a some sort of YouTube like filmmaking breakdown video. Um, and they were talking about basically a, a similar sort of thing, but it goes through an entire house 
And so like they did it all with CGI, like from the outside of the house, there's no window there. And like half the actual set pieces that the camera flies through aren't there because they just added them in with CGI to make it more impressive. Whereas this one, it was just impressive in the fact that they did it. So I found that to be really cool. So yeah, so Fritz Arner, Fritz Arno Wagner is the cinematographer behind this and Nosferatu. One day I think we should watch Nosferatu for the podcast for sure. And that's that's what's going to get me into it because I already love the way this guy's cinematography played out. Yeah, it's been on our list since the beginning. I mean, I know we've abandoned most of the movies on our original list, um, but I think that was definitely one that we put on there. Yeah. So that pretty much wraps up all the interesting stuff that I found on this. Tell me, what do you rate this on the creep scale? And um, who is your favorite character? I still have other stuff, Ian. You said you didn't. Fine. I said I didn't have a lot of stuff, but <sighs> right, I still have thing. other stuff. <sighs> Sounds so annoyed. We're doing a whole 30. We just started it today, so a little bit tense, both of us. It's fine. <laughs> No alcohol for this one. We're drinking tea. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, this is the first time we're doing it completely sober. I mean, not that we're hammered on here. And I mean, not that we're drunks or anything like that. <laughs> Arguably. You're not painting us in a good light. No, I'm not. Um, but no, this is the first time we've ever tried to do something like this. And I told myself if I said it on the podcast, I would hold myself more accountable mm-hmm. to completing it. So... Um, no, I don't have that much stuff. So what I have is, so in 1931, the Nazi party was on the rise in Germany. It was the second biggest political party in Germany at the time. They rose to their full power in 1933. Um, a month before this movie was released, so in July of 1931, the German mark collapsed and so did German banks. Um, So I'm not really sure how that affected the release of this movie and like whether or not people went to go see it. Um, But, you know, anybody, I shouldn't say anybody, but a lot of us who know World War I, World War II history know that the German mark collapsed. Their currency had essentially no value to it. And this happened right around that time. The movie was eventually banned by the Nazi party in 1934, and it was vaulted until 1966. So for 28 years, nobody had access to this movie in Germany. Um, I think it had already premiered in America by this point, so there was access to it elsewhere, but not in Germany, Um, which I find interesting because, you know, at first... The Nazi party was very concerned that this movie was about them, and Fritz Lang convinced them it wasn't, and then they changed their mind. <laughs> um, Peter, is it Peter Lore or Lore? I always just say Lori. Lori? Lori? Maybe okay. Laura, I don't know. Laura. Like I said, I'm not good at German. Uh, I should look these things up. Probably. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I know we keep getting more German keep listeners. Off our German listeners. I know we keep getting more German listeners, <laughs> sorry. too. I'm so We're dumb sorry. American. Um, so Peter Lorre, who plays the killer, was actually Jewish, and he had to flee Germany very shortly after the film released. Um, he was then cast in the first version of Alfred Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much in 1934, which was filmed in Great Britain. And this was actually a big way of how he learned English. So he didn't actually really learn the language 
to be in this movie, he had to learn all of his lines phonetically, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it did eventually help him end up learning English, but in that movie, he just had to learn how everything was supposed to sound. Um, Fritz Lang was also half Jewish, and he fled Germany in 1933. Um, it was known that Fritz Lang could be very cruel to his actors. Um, Peter Lorre was thrown down the stairs into the cellar over a dozen times um, when they finally catch the killer and they bring him before the people that shot. Um, he was thrown down a flight of stairs over a dozen times. Um, so when Lang wanted to hire Lorre for his film Human Desire in 1954, Lorre refused to ever work with Fritz Lang again. I did not find any other accounts, though, of Fritz Lang being cruel to his actors, just this one instance. Um, but also, I didn't really, I didn't really want to look more into that. Um, so, like I said, Fritz Lang was half Jewish, so he was very opposed to the Nazi party. And this film can be seen as a reflection of how he viewed Germany at the time. You know, this movie in a lot of ways, as a warning to mothers to watch their children closer. Um, but it also just shows how Lang was upset with German society for allowing the Nazis to come into power. Um, so you stepped away um, for a minute while I was saying this, but um, so... As I mentioned, Fritz Lang was half Jewish, and so he was opposed to the Nazi party, and this film can be viewed as a reflection of his opposition to the Nazi party. And okay. in a lot of ways, this movie was a warning to mothers to watch their children. But we also can see through the way that he's portraying the society, kind of like I said, as being morally devoid you know there's no real difference between the law enforcement and the criminal underworld yeah and you know the people they don't feel like the police are doing enough work so they take matters into their own hands mm -hmm. um so i see that as kind of fritz lang showing how he was upset with the german people for allowing the nazis to come to power okay um, so that was, yeah, the last little bit I had on that, I did look up a little bit on Peter Lorre, mm -hmm. um, him. So he began his stage career in Vienna before moving to Germany, where he did both stage and film work from the late 1920s up through the early 1930s until Hitler assumed power. He started his career off in comedy, actually, and M hmm. was his first dramatic role. Um, like I said, he left Germany and went to Great Britain. He eventually did make it to Hollywood. His first American films were Mad Love and Crime and Punishment. Both came out in 1935, and he was cast as a murderer in both. Great. Yeah. So, typecast. Yep. Um, from 1941 to 1946, he had a contract with Warner Bros., so he was in movies such as The Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, which Ian and I watched together as well. Yeah. And Arsenic and Old Lace. So he oh, I've seen that. Okay, I haven't. Um, after the end of World War II, he mainly concentrated on radio and stage work, um, something that is just 
horrible is his image from M was used on a German poster for the anti-Semitic propaganda film, The Eternal Jew. It came out in 1940, and they used his picture to depict what an example of a quote-unquote typical Jew is, which is just... That's disgusting. I'm sorry. You know, no, I'm not sorry for that. That's disgusting. That's what they were good at. I mean, Goebbels was really shitty, good at his job propagandist. So, yeah, it makes sense. It's shitty from an outside perspective. That Unfortunately, they were very effective at what they did. Yeah. <sighs> I know. Now, a couple of fun facts. Um, Alfred Hitchcock said one of his nicknames was the walking overcoat because he used to record in or not record rehearse in a floor length coat no matter what time of year it was. Interesting. Yeah. Um, (laughs) um, He was used as inspiration for the ghost mascot of the cereal Booberry which is one of my favorite cereals. I love that <laughs> shit. It's so good. That's strange. Um, in an interview, he once claimed that he and his friends coined the, claim, coined the slang word creep for Ay. a creepier, annoying person. So I had to, had to throw that in. Ew. Um, he was the visual inspiration for the original illustration of Gomez Adams and the Adams Family when they were first published in the New Yorker in 1938. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, I immediately was just like, mm, mm-hmm, you are Gomez Adams. <laughs> um, last thing, this is just kind of, oh, that's going to segue me into my last little bit is around 1977, his daughter Catherine was almost abducted in L.A. by the Hillside Stranglers. She was stopped by the serial killers as they were impersonating police officers, but once they saw her ID and realized she was Lori's daughter, they let her go because her dad was famous for playing a serial killer. Huh. Yeah, so... What a weird twist of fate. I know, it literally saved her life. Yeah, that's wild. Speaking of serial killers, as I mentioned, there were a few that are believed to have inspired the killer in this movie. So I'm not going to go into super in-depth detail for them. Sadly, sadly for me, we're not a true crime podcast. But I'm sure there are podcasts out there on all of these fuckers that you can go listen to if you really want to. Yeah. Or if you're a sane person and you don't want to. Sorry. I just always give Madeline flack because I'm afraid she's so into true crime podcasts. She's just going to kill me in my sleep one night. If I do, I'll know how to get away with it. Probably. Yep. Actually, not now that that I just incriminated myself on this podcast. Ha ha. Backfired. Ha. (laughs) All right. Go on. Um, So first one is Peter Curtin, Vampire of Dusseldorf. He had nine confirmed murders. Um, it is believed he attempted over 30 murders. He committed to the majority of murders and sexual assaults in 1929, but confessed to murdering a young woman as early as 1913. Um, and I say young woman, but honestly, all of his victims were children, which is very sad. And that's why many critics believe he was the main inspiration for the serial killer in this movie. Makes sense. Um, Eight children went missing in this movie. And we see him try to attempt a ninth more than once. And this man 
was convicted of killing nine different children, um, but he was decapitated by the guillotine on July 2nd, 1931. So actually like a month before this movie came out, um, this man was executed. It was actually a month after the film was released on May 11th, 1931. Oh, I got August 31st, 1931 from IMDb. Maybe we found different sources. Yeah. If anyone knows better, let us know. Yeah, I got mine from IMDb. That's, I kind of use IMDb like a crutch for this podcast. I love it, Um, but it may not be accurate information. Yeah, I don't know. I found a lot of uh, varying resources from like film history. Okay. And that's what they pointed out for this one. Mm, Okay. I, I trust you. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, I don't know who's right. That's the problem with the internet most of the time. Yeah. Um, The next one is Fritz Harmon, the Butcher of Hanover. He was convicted of 24 murders, but was charged with 27. He committed crimes between 1918 and 1924. All of his victims were males between the ages of 10 and 22. And he was also guillotined on April 15th, 1925. Hmm. The last one is Carl Groveman, the Berlin Butcher. It is believed he had anywhere between 26 and over 100 victims. That's quite a range. Yes. um, He committed his crimes, at least the murders, between 1918 and 1921. But I'm sure it happened earlier um, because... In his, as a younger man, he served a couple of prison sentences for child molestation, sexually assaulting very young girls. It's just horrible. All of his victims were women. And he hanged himself in his cell before trial, so was never convicted of the murders. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty shitty. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, so, okay, that's all I had now, Ian. Um, what were your thoughts on this movie? What do you rate it? Who is your favorite character? Okay. All that fun stuff. So, yeah, um, on the creep scale, definitely a 10. I loved this movie. I thought it was fantastic. Um, it was just so well made. I don't know if I really have a favorite character. I mean, probably the most interestingly developed character was Hans Becker, the murderer, because he was the most humanized and everyone else was kind of like this caricature of what they were supposed to be. Like the the police inspector was this kind of brusque, portly man that was very authoritarian, but ultimately ineffective. And the gangsters as a whole were all just kind of this one unit. Um, there was a the leader of, of those mobster characters that was kind of interesting. So I don't want to say that he was my favorite character because he was awful. But I think probably the best character in the film was definitely Hans Becker. So that's just what I think. Okay. What about you? Um. So I think... Mm, I don't know. I don't know if I give this one a 9 or a 10. Um, can I do a 9.5? Cheater. Doing a 9.5. Uh, <laughs> no, I really like this film. Um, I It stuck with me for a few days after. Uh-huh. Um, and honestly, my favorite character was 
the killer's defender, his quote-unquote lawyer. I don't think he was actually a lawyer. Um, might have been. He had pretty lawyer-like points been. that he made. True. Um, but that was my favorite character because, as you know, Ian, my day job is I work in criminal defense. Yeah. And so that just seemed that it really stuck out to me because there are so many times where I'm on the side of the one person who is advocating for somebody and the one person who is still trying to view this person as a human, regardless of what they have done. You know, I remember one time I went into my boss's office and I just asked her, I was like, you know, if you get a client that's being charged with a sex crime or murder like how do you morally defend that I understand legally because everyone deserves a fair trial I get that but morally how do you do it and you know she just said they're still humans and that was that and I was just like oh okay you're right like yeah for some people that's enough and for others it isn't yeah yeah, no, I know it, it's definitely not a line of work for everybody. And I mean, there are definitely, there are definitely bad defense attorneys. Um, I do not think I work for one. I really don't. Um, but so that was why this movie was just so impactful to me is, again, I was just like, I work with this. Like, this is what I do. <laughs> um so yeah i really really liked it though um we do have a review from somebody thanks um, thanks for your contribution yeah somebody. um before i read that do you have any other last thoughts on this movie ian um anything that really stood out to you theme wise because it was a pretty i mean it was a it was a pretty deep movie i would say no i mean i think I covered it pretty well earlier. Just it's this weird sort of hodgepodge of a story where everything it, it's all just like two sides of the same coin. Basically, everybody's going at it from the same sort of angle. Well, not from the same angle. Everybody's got the same end goal of catching the killer and it's just handled differently. And I don't know. I think that was the best thing about the story of the film was just that you can see these two wildly different perspectives, at least from how each group sees themselves. But looking at it from the outside as a viewer of the film, we can see that, oh, you know, these two groups are basically identical in what they're doing and what they're hoping to accomplish. So it's food for thought for, for real life. That's why I liked it so much. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, well, this review came from not just any book club. It is another podcast, so go listen to them. Um, this is what they had to say. At first, I thought this was just a good movie, like a forgettable film that you appreciate because it sets the tropes for the future. But absolutely nothing could have prepared me for that ending. One of the most profound things that I have ever seen, a complete 180 in terms of quality. It went from a pretty well-made catch-the-serial-killer thriller into a discussion into what it means to give out justice. That courtroom scene has stayed 
with me for years after I've seen it. How you go from hating a monster to wanting him to be cured from his ills and now sympathizing with him without excusing his actions. In a time where they would probably lobotomize you for showing emotions, this is still something that should be talked about and want to see more of today. Brilliant film. So thank you so much, not just any book club, for sending that over to us. Um, if you have your own movie reviews for this movie or anything else we cover, just send them to us and we'll read one or two of them each episode. Yeah, as long as we get some. <laughs> that's, that's the key thing. <laughs> Say we got one this week and so we read that. And luckily it was a good one. So yes, thank you. Thank you. It was very, very thoughtful. Well thought out. Um, I don't have anything else, Ian. Um, would you like to announce next week's movie? No, I wouldn't, but I'll do it anyway. So I'm really not looking forward to this one because I've told Madeline this earlier. I, I'm really not a big fan of modern horror or thrillers because a lot in my experience rely on jump scares and I fucking hate jump scares. It's the worst. I pee myself a little bit every time and I don't like it. But I don't know. I don't know anything about this film. I'm just assuming that it's got some because it's a blanket thing. But But it's by the same person. I'm going to give it away. Maybe it's by the same person who did Midsummer, and that didn't have jump scares. True. So if that did give it away, the uh, the next film we're doing is Hereditary. So be prepared for that. It's supposedly a real nightmare. Yeah, um, we actually did not look up where we can find it. Um, I'll try to tweet it out this week. If you follow <laughs> us on Twitter, you saw my tweet this past week. Life is crazy, guys. Ian works full time. I work and am going back to school full time, so... We will still be releasing episodes weekly, but we probably won't be as active on social media for a while. Social mead. Social mead. Social meads. <laughs> That's a thing, right? No, it's not. I don't know. No, it's definitely not. I'm just an idiot. I will neither confirm nor deny. Fuck you. <laughs> hey, you opened it up to that one. <laughs> I don't know what you want from me. <sighs> All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you have movie suggestions for us, you can send them to creepshowspodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at creepshowspod. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash creepshowspodcast. We are hoping to start producing some Patreon content eventually. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It really helps us out, and we hope you join us next week. Stay safe out there. Bye. Bye. Bye.